If you could turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, and we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, and actually the passage you just heard Joe read um, is going to be the, the primary location where we're going to be, but we are going to be in a couple other places. So if you have notes, it's going to list a bunch of passages that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, but that I'd encourage you to jump in uh, later on this week. So we're in this series called It's Complicated. And the reason that we're in this series is because we wanted to find some of the things that Christians either um, have a difficult time understanding, or even if they kind of understand them, they have a difficult time explaining them to others. And and so, and if you wanted to sum it down, basically pick the things that Christians argue about, disagree about, or want to pick a fight about, and let's talk about those things. And so throughout the next couple of weeks, you might have just this progressive um, series of being offended week after week after week. (laughs) So bring it, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> this week, uh, and that's actually the reason why we have this, um, if you think about like a child's uh, uh, play crib, mobile in their crib, this looks like Tim Burton's. But, um, but the whole purpose of this was just kind of painting a picture of the fact that there are things. I mean, there's so much in our faith where it's so easy for us to wrap our mind around it. This is black, this is white. Black and white, clear distinctions in our doctrine and our dogma. The, there are other things, however, that are far more difficult to, to do that. Some of them are more segmented or fragmented or broken apart. And so the purpose of this series is to bring those issues into the lens of scripture and try to wrap our brains around it from that place, maybe, maybe for the first time for some of us. And so this week we're talking about spiritual warfare. Now, I don't wanna say spiritual warfare is, is super complicated. I think it's just, it's more diverse in how Christians have addressed it, approached it, or tried to exercise it. It's, it's been, it's kind of all over the place. And uh, I think that Christianity can be, uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way, kind of how people break down spiritual warfare. And he said it this way, humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. Either they take him altogether too seriously, or they don't take him seriously enough. Now, now you have people that are, that take Satan altogether too seriously. Everything is Satan's fault. The devil made me do it. Uh, Everything's a demonic attack. It's all over the place. And, 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 you know, that when you, like, let's just say you get pulled over by a police officer, you know, that trying to explain to him that really isn't your fault. It's the devil when, you know, that takes place on Friday, the 17th of this year at 8, 15 a.m. when you're taking your kids to school. And when you're explaining, you know, when you're realizing that the cop is saying, yeah, you're going 36 and a 25, the temptation to say, well, there's a demon in my accelerator and it truly isn't my deal. It's, that, that's something where Christians fall into that, that type of mind frame where it's, it's all say, and what ends up happening is we end up elevating Satan who is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not in your brain. He's not omnipresent. He's not every place, not even all of his angelic forces, the demonic forces. They're not every place, but we elevate him to that level of power and glory, to be honest with you. That isn't his, that only, that only belongs to God. And so that's the first error. We don't take him seriously enough. But I think that, that the church's overall error, at least, at least most, a lot of evangelical, and I would say the error in my own heart is that second one. That I don't take him seriously enough. That I, I, when considering the whole concept of spiritual warfare, it's something that is off the grid for the most part. It's off the radar, something I don't contemplate all that much. And that's because I was raised as a very good conservative Baptist kid. <laughs> and very good Baptist kids, um, 
we get, we get queasy if you talk about the Holy Spirit too much. So talking about anything in the spiritual realm is like, ah, I don't need, yeah, that's for the charismatics and the freaks and everything else. And clearly I'm not one of those. And, and so that's, that's and then the closest I got to spiritual warfare was reading This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti in the 90s. I mean, that was it. And so, the, so spiritual warfare has been on. I mean, I even remember walking through, um, through a Christian bookstore. And uh, do you remember if you grew up in the 80s and 90s? The, I don't think it was in the 70s, but they had the full armor of God playset. You know what I'm talking about? You could, like, the kids could put it on. And I so wanted one of those. And my dad said, no, it's, I don't know if I theologically agree. <laughs> and it's too expensive. Um, so that's my backdrop. That's my confession to you, is, is I come at this really at a point of deficiency. And so when we're discussing this, though, we need to realize that this is something incredibly biblical. And so we're going to be attacking this from three different areas. First off, the reality of spiritual warfare, the weapons that we have for spiritual warfare, and then the process of spiritual warfare that scripture points out and uh, primarily found from, from chapter six of Ephesians. Um, starting, let's start off with the reality. This is a thing. This is a, a real deal. This is something that, that is, that is we know it's true. You don't have to just look at the world to know it's true. It's true in scripture. That, that throughout scripture in the New Testament and Old Testament, it's made very clear that Satan has an agenda. His agenda is to wage war against those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus, to steal and kill and destroy, to murder and lie, to deceive and distort the truth, to influence the way people behave, to tempt and seduce people into sin, to accuse God's children, to discourage and keep people from being effective and productive for God. And if you wanted to boil that down, the way I would boil all that down is Satan's agenda is to discourage, distract, and destroy the image of God in you. That is his purpose. His point is to take you and discourage you from recognizing who you are in God and who God's crafted you to be, to distract you from that and to destroy it. Satan wants to destroy you. And, and, and this is something that we can see in our willful choice in the sinful patterns of our life. This is something that we, we can see from, from periods of addiction in our world. But there's certainly me agreeing with the enemy, agreeing with Satan that rebellion from God is, makes sense. And some of that, I believe, is brought on by direct spiritual warfare and others is just me living in the broken, sinful world with that heart that I, that I was raised with and agreeing with something that isn't who I really am. Now, uh, one of the things that, that we also see spiritual warfare stepping into is when we open that door willfully and actually let that in. Um, I was talking a couple years back uh, to a woman in our church, and I'm just going to call her Cindy. That's not her real name. And she said, uh, she, we had an interaction. She wanted me to bless her house, which I don't get asked that every day. I mean, seriously, I, I'm, people, you haven't, you haven't invited me over to do that. I mean, just, it doesn't happen. Um, and so I was like, bless your house? Why? Well, actually, if it could be a couple of you, I need some pastors to come to the house because my house is haunted. And that really doesn't happen every day. <laughs> But then she, she continued to tell me a story that made me more and more uh, sober to what she was going through. This is what she says, I've always believed in ghosts. I was told from a very young age that they are loved ones that want to stay with us, give us signs, can't cross over, don't realize they're dead. The reasons go on and on. I've seen ghosts. I felt their presence and sought them out. I've done seances, worked the Ouija board, and gone to graveyards at night. I did all these things for years. I never had a problem with any of it. Every house I ever lived in was haunted. 
When I was little, my mom's sister died, and then we all believed that she stayed with us. She even moved with us when we went to our new town. My grandpa died when I was nine. I saw him in the hallway of my school when I was 12. I saw shadows when all the lights were on, lights and fans would turn on and off by themselves. This was all normal, everyday stuff for me and my whole family. When I had my first baby, I didn't change the way I viewed the afterlife. My newborn son would smile and coo at nothing. The blinds in his room were closed when I left them open. I said these were signs that our loved ones were watching over him and checking in on him, that they wanted to get to know him. As our son grew, he would talk about a strange person, always a little boy, that would come and play with him. My son was stating facts about other countries that no three-year-old could possibly know. My husband and I thought it was cute that he had an imaginary friend. I kept going to graveyards at night and trying to stay in touch with my grandpa. A few years later, we moved into a really old house, and our son came to me and said there was a strange man in his room the night before. He said he rolled over and closed his eyes really tight because he thought it was Santa Claus. It was Christmas Eve, and he didn't want to get caught awake. A few weeks later, our son said that he saw him again, and he was old and whispering. He couldn't make out what he was trying to say, but the man scared him. Not long after that, our son ran downstairs and said that there was a little girl laughing in his closet. Needless to say, he was completely freaked out. Again, my mom wanted me to explain how all this works in our family. I didn't want to push it on him if he was uncomfortable. While this was happening with our son, our infant daughter starts waking up every single night between 11 and 11.20, screaming horrible screams, sitting up. Nothing would calm her until we would remove her from the room. This went on for months. This individual's mom wanted to set up some seances and bring mediums into the house to expel whatever ghosts were there, help the ghosts move on. And what was happening throughout this person's life was this doorway was opening wider and wider to say, come and get me. And that happens when you do stuff like that. And, and some of us in here have done stuff like that in our past. But it also happens when we actually aren't in rebellion from God, but we're actually in direct obedience to him. Talk to any one of the missionaries at our church that come and talk and, and share and ask them about the spiritual warfare component of what they're experiencing on the mission field. And they will tell you story after story after story. Things that make us as Americans go, seriously? Because Satan really doesn't need to attack us in the same way that he attacks um, other parts of the world. He, he has a very effective pattern of materialism, helping us pursue the American dream to go, go, go. Help us being wrapped up in our depression to the point of hopelessness and suicide. I mean, Satan's got his own um, set of stuff that he has Americans under. But one missionary, who, uh, this is through the Gospel Coalition, uh, he was in a, in a uh, country that was less than 1% Christian. Most of them were atheists. And um, as soon as he and his wife went on the mission field with their two-year-old, he was experiencing problem after problem after problem. Liters of urine that was found in or poured into his baby's seat, uh, blood splattered on the wall. Some of the stuff was with things that they knew were neighbors that were just trying to get them out, um, but it just continued on. They, they sensed this, this really dark presence in their bedroom that they just couldn't shake. He said that his child continued, his two-year-old child continued waking up screaming. Now, I've had a few kids, and they wake up screaming, and that's just pretty normal, especially in my house. But at two and a half, this child was able to start to verbalize what they were screaming about. At two and a half, he was finally able to verbalize what he'd been dreaming about for the past few months. One of his most vivid dreams was about a woman with black hair and red eyes who wore only a bra and black pants and would offer him a basket of rotten fruit and force him to eat it. 
The nightmare was X-rated, not the typical toddler being chased by a bear dream. Satan was not playing fair. Now the shock turned to anger. I scanned the recesses of my brain. What had seminary taught me about demonic activity? I couldn't recall any class where we had discussed anything remotely similar to what we were experiencing. Demonology 101 wasn't even offered. But seminary did teach me not to panic in the face of theological conundrums. It gave me the lens through which I could see everything from the perspective of God's sovereignty. He, he This missionary uh, later on said this, what we experienced was normal for our context, and many other missionaries can testify to similar kinds of things. I call these sorts of scare tactics demonic bullying. In a place where the number of Christians is less than 1% and the rest of the population is consciously or unconsciously worshiping the enemy, this is not at all surprising. Satan does not want people rescued out of darkness and brought into the light. He will use ordinary, frustrating events to harass a believer, and occasionally he will employ extraordinary means to bolster his scare tactics as well as was the case in my son's dream. This is a thing. And many of you have stories or backdrops where you could look at periods of your time where there was just something going on that wasn't just gravity happening. It wasn't just the normal, natural effects of decisions. There was something else, another component at play. And scripture makes it very clear through that passage that the role of the believer is to stand firm in the midst of that, to understand that this is a reality, that there is an invisible war happening that we can't see that actually has implications and impacts on our everyday life. But the cool thing is this, is that, that it's not just, you're, you're going to be attacked from, the day, from this day to the day you die. There's going to be this attack, a spiritual world that you, realm, that you live in. But instead, we see that in the Bible, that there's actually hope. That in the midst of this warfare, that we have weapons. That we have, we have a place to, that, that we can actually act from instead of just being a victim of. In, in the passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, D.A. Carson, when he, was taught, when he was studying it, said this, Paul has prayed that his readers, leading up to this passage, Paul has prayed that his readers would understand how the power and mighty strength of God had been made available to them by their union with the Messiah, who sits at God's right hand, victorious over his cosmic foes. Now, in 6, 10 to 17, however, he recognizes the other side of the eschatological tension in which believers live. Although the victory is sure, believers must still defend the position that Christ has won for them against the last desperate attacks of the devil and his malevolent allies. In other words, what he's saying is this. The eschatological tension is between, Jesus, between the cross and the end times when Jesus returns, we are going to be under attack. And the reality is that the victory was won on the cross. The victory was won there. But we are going to be under attack. And the call from this passage is for the believer to stand firm. Now, when I was looking down at all these different um, uh, um, weapons of spiritual warfare that, that Paul talks about, it's very clear that Paul's doing a couple of things. He's, he's kind of like alluding back to some, some definitions or, or explanations of who the Messiah was going to be through the prophet. Uh, the prophet Isaiah was talking about who Jesus was going to be. But it's also, he's looking at the Roman centurion that he's closest with and being able to identify all the different pieces and parts of his weaponry and then vamping off of that. But as I was studying it, and I've studied this passage before, I've looked at it a ton of times, I never saw something. There's something really, really cool in the midst of every single bit, because I always thought, okay, this is the sword, this is the breastplate, this is the helmet. But if you look at the explanations and the words that Paul uses, these words are not just used in this passage, they're used elsewhere. Definitions of these words are found elsewhere. 
further explanations, and they're all pointing to Jesus. Take a look. If you start off with the belt of truth, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. When Paul is talking about the truth that a believer has going into spiritual warfare, he's talking about the truth of Jesus, not a truth, the truth. Now, if you're a Roman centurion, you're not, they don't wear belts to keep up the pants because they're not wearing pants. They're scoring a skirt, okay? And this is not something, and I was going to like dress this way and everything, but I think there's got to be a policy against a pastor wearing a dress on stage. They didn't have something that was just keeping up their trousers. They had a belt that was their utility belt. This held their weapon so that they could fight. They have this around them. And Paul's saying, you know what that is? That's the truth of Jesus. And you have it. The thing that keeps you able to fight in spiritual warfare is Jesus. Him wrapped around your waist is what keeps you in the game. And he continues on. Not only the belt of truth, but the breastplate of righteousness. What's the breastplate? It's that awesome thing that um, the guys in movie 300 didn't have to wear because they're so crazy strong. But it looks like you're, you know, it's like all like metal and stuff. And it, what it, it protects your vital organs. It protects your heart. It protects all the things that keep you going and living. And so Paul says, when thinking about that piece, the breastplate of, it, for a believer is righteousness. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made the righteousness of God through Christ. Let me tell you why that's important. <clears throat> this is cool. These, this part of me, my heart, is something that Satan will attack time and time again. And what Satan will attack me with is, you are disqualified because of this, this, and this. You shouldn't, you should just give up hope. Because of that past action, you should never think that you're valid, whatever. I was talking with some friends earlier this week and just realizing that right around when I was um, 11 or 12 years old, there was something spoken to me that has made an impact negatively on my life ever since. It was told to me in a moment where I I needed to be corrected and it was uh, from someone who cared about me, but the words that they said, the word that they said to me was something that not only was there at 11, 12-year-old Errol McFadden, but it carried on. And whenever I fail, whenever I, I, I fall short of the mark, whenever I disappoint my spouse, Whenever I do something that, that, I, that is off the map and, and I shouldn't have done it, I go right back to that word. And that's the word that keeps on coming back to me, defining me. When this word was spoken to me when I was 11, 12 years old, um, I wasn't even angry. You know when people say something to you that you totally disagree with, you get angry about it, like, I can't believe you even said that. You don't know me. But when this word was spoken to me, I agreed with it. And it just sobered me. And I let that define me. And every single time I have failed, I've gone right back to that word. See, that's what Satan does. He puts you in a point of shame of saying, do you know who you are? Do you know why you should be disqualified? Do you know why you should give up this battle? Because of this track record that you have is so far off that no one would love you. No one would want to use you. You're not usable. You're disqualified. And Paul says, yeah, but you know what? I've got something protecting my heart from that type of attack. And the thing is, not my righteousness, not my right deeds, not my good stuff. It's his. 
Jesus's righteousness is what protects my heart. Jesus's righteousness is is what protects me from believing the lie that continues to come back to me from 11 and 12 years old. That when that lie surfaces, I could say, yeah, you know what? That was true. (laughs) That was true. But that's not who I am. Who I am is the righteousness of God through Christ. That's the breastplate of righteousness. Paul goes on in verse 15 to talk about shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. If you think about a centurion, the reason that they need good sandals, good shoes, is that they need to be mobile. They need to be able to run over rocks and not just be running over over all that precarious, sharp stuff with naked feet. They needed feet that were protected. They're not vulnerable. And what Paul says in a believer's life, you know what that is? The thing that keeps you mobile, keeps you able to continue moving forward, it's the gospel of peace, the good news, the good news that God has made peace with you. And he can do it. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. When Paul says our battle isn't against flesh and blood, it's not against people. Like we think it's against people, but it's not against people. Our battle isn't against people. It's against the rulers and authorities of the dark world. And he's not just talking about the government. He's talking about the fact that there is an authority over, the, over our world that is in rebellion against God. And Isaiah says there's going to come somebody and the government's going to sit on his shoulders. He will make all things new and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's bringing a peace that's above and beyond your circumstance or your conditions. That you could be going through the worst scenario of your life. You could be going through the worst divorce, the worst firing, whatever. And there is a Prince of Peace that's in the midst of that with you that you are not alone. And not only that, we also see this. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the cool thing is this. The thing that keeps me mobile as a believer, the thing that keeps you mobile as a believer is this. Jesus made peace between God and me. We're not at odds. We are not enemies. And so when Satan wants to distance me from God, when Satan wants to keep me on a place of paralysis, like I I can't be used because of... The gospel of peace, the good news that Jesus made peace between me and God. He gave me his righteousness. He took away God's wrath and, and he put it on himself on the cross. That's my good news to say, that's how I'm able to keep going forward. That's how I'm able to stand my ground. It's not my strength, it's his. Not only shoes, he moves from the shoes to the shield. And the shield for the centurion was this huge, massive, like, door. Um, think about this massive rectangle that was like a door like this, that, that he could protect himself from all of these arrows that are coming down. Now, Paul talks about the arrows being flaming. I mean, if you could just imagine all these, like, flaming arrows coming up in the sky, everything's going dark because of the shadow of all of these flaming arrows are coming down, and then they're coming down and getting everyone. And in that scenario, you want to have a massive shield, I don't care. Honestly, it doesn't have to be flaming arrows. I mean, seriously, if the arrows had rainbow streamers coming off them, I'm still toast. Unless there's a shield. And that shield, the size of it that it was, when a centurion goes down like this, all of a sudden he has a protected space all around him that not only protects him from the arrows themselves, but also protects him from the impact of the fire. That protective space, Paul says, is something that comes from our our faith. And it's not from ourselves. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so I recognize that even when my faith, my own like decisive faith that I feel is coming from me, 
is coming to its end point. It's fizzling out. I can be reminded of the fact that my faith is not built and based on my ability to endure or continue on, but that it's actually a gift of grace, that it's his work. And that's something that I have, this shield of faith. He goes from that to the helmet of salvation. Something to protect your noggin, your noodle up there, the eight pounds of that's up in your head. Now, how many of you enjoy watching football? Okay, football player. I mean, the NFL has had this huge, massive thing about helmets in the past couple years, right? Because these guys get their bell rung, right? And when they get their bell rung, um, all of a sudden they, they have all these difficulties. They can't function or speak by the time they're 35 because of all this junk that's going on. And so they, they put all this attention to ergonomically designing this thing to absorb impact. And even though all these terrible things happen um, to football players who are like running at each other like Mack trucks, those helmets are still pretty invaluable. I mean, imagine, what if the NFL said, you know what, we've been getting so much flack lately about these helmets. Forget it. We're not going to play with helmets anymore. We're playing helmet-free. Can you imagine the carnage? And we would all watch. Those helmets are massively important, but imagine if you're, you're not just playing a football game, you're in a battle. And so their helmets weren't fiberglass and plastic. Their helmets were, were metal. And the importance of that was that I need to protect this. The brain that I have, the thing that's on my head, I can function without an arm, I can function without a leg, I can function with a lot of stuff, but I need my head because this brain is connected to my spine. This brain helps me move. This brain helps me choose and decide and, and, and function. Without this brain, if I don't have this brain protected, game over. And so Paul says, you know what that is for a believer? It's the fact that you were rescued. You've been saved by Jesus. You might be in the middle of a battle and everything's just breaking apart and dissolving. You're looking at your, the work situation just dissolve. The relationships you have dissolve. Things just going sideways. And when that's happening, at the end of the day, the thing that's still your anchor point is the fact that you're still protected because of your salvation. In Romans 5.9, Paul says, Much more, having been justified through his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God saved you. God saved you. Scripture says that he, he did this for his glory and because he loves you. He loves you. Now, this is the legal side of things. But look at the emotional side of things that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Being the, belonging to the day, basically the end times, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, whether we're dead or alive, we may live together with him. That's the emotional side. The, the, the practical legal side is that, that we, we were saved from God's wrath. We no longer have God's wrath against us legally. This is the emotional side. Because you're saved, you're never going to be alone. Never want for one more day are you going to be alone. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone, whether you're dead or alive, because of Jesus, you have this newfound reality. You are protected. And when Satan attacks, so often he is attacking your mind, your, your ability to process your current situation, your current reality, your ability even to think back on your childhood and process that, your ability to see things with a perspective that's above and beyond the current circumstances, which freak us out. The helmet of salvation is our protection to remind us that God did that. 
He continues on in verse 17 with the sword of the Spirit, because this is how we know those things. I mean, I could tell you, I could just make up stuff about this. The reason that we know this is connected not just to a teaching or some preacher or some book is God's Word. God's Word not only helps us get to know Him better, but it helps us understand who we are in Him and how we function through this world, and that is through the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul continues on to say, to help you be whole, help you be complete and equipped for every good work. The reason that you can do that is because we're in God. The reason that we need to be in God's word is because it's not just this religious discipline. It's because the more that I understand the truth of God, the more that I can pick up the lie from Satan. The more that I could pick out and divide and decipher the things that are just totally wrong. Even the stuff that's totally wrong that's coming from my own mind. Now again, this blew me away when I was looking at this in this passage, but take a look at this. Because the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, all this stuff, it all points back to Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus gives us our faith. Jesus saved us. And through the word of God, Jesus is illuminated. And so when we're thinking about this whole thing, the weapons of spiritual warfare are not many, but one. The weapon of spiritual warfare is Jesus who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. That is the weapon of spiritual warfare. You see, Jesus said that he came to liberate, that his work was to liberate. He said he didn't come to condemn, but to seek and to save the lost. That he was entering into a world full of bad news. The bad news is our sin has crippled us and distanced us from God, and there's nothing we could possibly do about it. So people get religious to try to get rid of it. They do good stuff to try to get rid of it, but they're still stuck in it. That's bad news. He entered into that, and through the cross and the resurrection, he brought good news. His finished work was called the gospel or good news. The good news that that stuff doesn't stick to me because of Jesus. I'm not condemned by that because of Jesus. And then the people who receive that, Something takes place in them where his follow, Jesus' followers were called ambassadors, proclaiming the power of the good news everywhere they went under his authority. They go into a situation where there's this massive great need. Christians all of a sudden start stepping into that great need, not on their own authority in their own name, but under Jesus' authority in his name because they were bringing the good news into this situation. When they're talking to someone who's far from God and they're hopeless, they're going into the bad news of that situation and bringing good news, saying there's a better story. And it's the fact that God is this. This is what God has done. This is what he has done. And this extends even into the spiritual realm. And this is what freaks out the inner Baptistic kid and me. But this is what Jesus said. He sends out 72 people to proclaim the reality of the good news and of the, his kingdom. And when the, in Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, and this is basically giving them some perspective. Look, don't think this is all that great. I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I, I was there when that took place. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. He's saying this to put them in perspective and to check themselves. This is not your authority. Don't be super stoked about this. In fact, he, he qualifies it in the next verse. However, do not rejoice the spirits submit to you. That's not, you're not getting all prideful about this. That will lead to your pride, but it rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Pastor Nick is on a weekend retreat with uh, fifth graders, including my son, Carson. When I dropped Carson off, I am Carson's authority. I'm his dad. 
when I dropped Carson off, I signed a bunch of waivers. You know, yes, he's playing paintball. Yes, he may lose an eye, blah, blah, blah. Signed it. And I gave it to Nick. I gave Nick authority from me to be Carson's responsible party so that if Carson is on the edge of the roof and wants to jump off for giggles, he says, Carson, get down. When Carson wants to light something on fire to see what it would look like to burn, he says, Carson, put down the match. He can do that. He's got the authority to check my son and correct my son, not on his own authority, but on the authority that I gave him as a parent. That is what we see in this passage, Jesus saying to us, this is not your authority. Do you understand how in crazy powerful demonic forces are? They are, but I am more powerful than them. And you have, as a believer, someone who's bought with the blood of Jesus, the ability to put all things in check and to recognize that you are bringing gospel, the good news, anywhere you go, even into the spiritual realm, not on your authority, but on his. So the process is, is, is probably, probably the simplest part of the whole thing as far as spiritual warfare. It starts off with the simple reality of us being rescued by Jesus. A, I don't believe that a Christian can be possessed. I just don't. I don't believe, I don't see it in the Bible. Um, I don't believe believers can be possessed by an evil spirit. I am of the school of thought that believes that when a person receives the Holy Spirit, that you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. The good loving creator is now your guide. The good loving creator is now the one who's directing you and controlling you and, and, and rebuking you and, and encouraging you. That, that when you become a believer, you are, it's like a, a sign goes over your heart. Occupado. Okay, you are occupied. There is no, there is no, that, that, that you have no place here, okay? That said, I do believe that Christians can be oppressed by, they can't be possessed, but I think they can be oppressed by demons or bullied by demons or, or even tempted and, and pushed by demons. I believe that's totally a real reality. But if you, one thing I do know for sure is that if you're not a believer, then you are open vacancy. The, the sign on the hotel says vacancy, there's plenty of room and we've got cable TV, okay? There's an invitation there. And that, the only time that I believe that that aspect stops in your life is when Jesus rescues you. Is that your story? Secondly, not only being rescued by Jesus, but returning the real estate back to the rightful owner. After a person is saved, see the victory took place on the cross. And, and what happens then is throughout the rest of my life, the sanctification, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life is recognizing aspects of my heart that even though I am saved, even though I am delivered, that this real estate, <clears throat> this part of my brain, this part of my actions, this part of my memory is not under God's control. It's under Satan's. And so I'm going to take that real estate, which doesn't belong to Satan, and I'm going to bring it and give it to God. I'm going to take this thought process this does not, I'm saved. I was delivered on the point of, of my salvation. I'm going to take this and I'm going to give it back to God. Um, I was going to put post-it notes on, but I'm not going to do that. But if you notice over here on this I-beam, right next to that fire alarm deal, there's a ding. You know why that ding is there? Because they let me drive the scissor lift through here. <laughs> and then over there on that far I-beam, there's a big old hole. That's because one... Um, a guy here at church, he was helping us out with some um, uh, heating and air conditioning stuff. And he dinged that wall. That one wasn't me. That was him. Now, if we look at this building, just look at this building right here as your world, your life. If you're saved, if you were rescued by Jesus, on that day, victory was pronounced. 
However, in spite of the fact that this building is here, this belongs to the Lord, this is your life, you still acquire and maintain dings from the past that show the wear and tear, the entropy, 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 entropy of a, something in our heart that has not been given over completely to him. That thing that took place when I was 11 and 12 years old is one of those dings in my life. I could tell you other stories of different things that have taken place, sin patterns that I, that I chose to walk into, things that other people did to me. I didn't do it, but they did it to me, and that has, has just paralyzed me. Spiritual warfare is a believer's role of saying, I'm going to agree with what the Holy Spirit is doing, the sanctifying work of saying, I'm going to take that thing that was spoken to me, and I'm going to call it what it is. It was a lie. I'm going to bring this back to its rightful owner. That thing that was done to me, I'm going to take that and bring it to its rightful owner. This thought process, I'm going to do, bring it back to the rightful owner. J.D. Greer said it this way, I often hear Christians say they are fighting for victory, but the reality is that Christians fight from victory, not for victory. Jesus has already won the victory on our behalf, disarming and defeating every power of his darkness that threatens us. So when this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The last aspect is reaching out to other Jesus followers for help when you are stuck, beat down, or overwhelmed. Because this is a spiritual attack, one of the things that we have in God is the church. You know, one of the th- something was pointed out to me that if you look through all the armor of God, all of these things are protecting a person's frontal attack. Okay, the helmet, you have the breastplate, you've got the belt, you've got a shield, you have a sword, but there's no mention of any, any support for your back. Uh, there's probably lots of reasons, and I don't think this is particularly the reason, but I think that we see in the next verse something that does have a believer's back that Paul points out. He says this in verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. One of the things that protects a believer, one of the things that has a believer's back is the church. Followers of Jesus who are in the battle with you, who are able to hold you up and keep you accountable. And I have watched in services as people have allowed real estate that was, even though they were, the victory in Jesus was secure, they brought real estate from Satan back to the king, the rightful owner. I've seen that take place in counseling situations where I've talked to someone. And I've seen it where I've realized just in talking to someone that this, what's going on in this person's world is above and beyond my ability to help them. I could pray for them and give them good counsel, but I really think they need to talk to someone on a deeper level, like a Christian counselor. And I've seen that be amazing as Christian counselors bring scripture into the mix. And, and there's other situations where people who are absolutely been oppressed, where they did open up some type of doorway, or they've been, man, just plagued by something throughout their life that they just can't get freedom from. Where scripture talks about this spiritual battle being something that, again, believers are to come alongside each other and pray. And that that's work. We're working right now to have groups that are able to sit down with someone who's been just beat down by the enemy and feeling no victory and no deliverance from, 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 from this, this sin pattern or this, ba- this way of life for people to sit down and have the care to lovingly pray for them, to, to be able to discern what scripture passages this person needs to understand to agree with the work of God that's already took, taken place on the cross and for that person to experience freedom. That woman, Cindy, in closing, 
she wanted uh, Pastor Nick and I to go bless her house. And I was really, really cool with the idea of Nick going to her house. <laughs> but I told her, before, you, before we do that, here's what I want you to do. Right now, you have a house. And because she was saying, maybe I should just move. And that'll help the situation. I said, really? Have you listened to your whole story? The thing is not in your house. It's in you. It's like this thing that's following you everywhere you go. Contact, in scripture, contacting the dead is not something that we see ever looked at as a good idea. And that you're not really talking with the person you think you're talking to. You're speaking with the enemy. And you've opened this up over and over again. You need to go into your house as a believer. And we secured that fact that she was a believer. And recognize that God has given you the ability to take the real estate from Satan and give it to, give it to the Lord. And here's what you do. Do you guys pray like when you eat dinner? No? Scripture defines worship as praising God for who he is and giving him thanks for what he's done. That's worship, Romans 1. Before you eat, or after you eat, spend some time in prayer, thanking God for what he's done and praising him for who he is. And then you're going to be filling that section of real estate, your house, your kitchen, that time with your family, your kids, with worship of the one true God. Satan doesn't operate well in that setting. Now, your kids are freaked out to go to bed because of all this stuff. They, they see things. You've seen things in their bedroom. Go to bed, go to their bedroom with them and sit down and open up God's word and start to share with them the reality. I, I suggested a couple of uh, children's storybooks. Children's storybooks can be really lame and cheesy, but there's some that are really good that really access the truth of the gospel. And go through that reality. Help that pour over their hearts. This truth of the sovereign God and what he did through Jesus and help them understand that. And then let everyone in that room pray, giving thanks to God for what he's done in their life in that day. Do that, and then talk to me, and, and let, let me know if you'd like Nick and I to come by and, and pray. And then I didn't hear from her. And I was like, what happened? And then I ran into her again at church, and she said, it's been amazing. My house is a different place. It's now been two years since she's had any of that type of activity in her house. Why? Because she's an amazing spiritual warfare lady? Because I gave her awesome advice? No. Because Jesus is king. And she returned her house to being under his authority and his leadership, not anyone else's. He is the prince of peace. May we be a church that is operating under that mantle. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I don't know everyone's story in here. I don't know everyone's backdrop, but I do know that you are king and you're a king over all, including the invisible battle that clearly impacts us on a daily basis, even in the ways that we can't possibly see. Lord, for those in this room that have not yet been rescued by you, I pray that you just cause their heart to surrender to you, that you cause their heart to want to turn their life over to you, to be forgiven to be directed by you, to experience the freedom that comes from your victory that you accomplished on the cross. And for the rest of us, Lord, that are followers of you, Lord, we have been declared victorious through you, and yet we still live enslaved. Help us drop the shackles and live like the free people that we are because of what you've done. Turning the real estate of our thoughts and our actions and our memories over to you. And we'll give you the thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.